Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, medievalist and writer. Today, in the fourth of the Lent Seven Capital Vices and Their Remedies series, I'm thinking about anger and its remedies. I'll preface this episode by stating I'm quite uncomfortable with anger. I grew up in a family that didn't really express anger too often, as we have all later acknowledged to each other. I'm also pretty intimidated by angry people, and when I'm angry, I hate it. I don't like that feeling. So I'm carrying some baggage into this one. Anger, like pride, is tough because there's good anger and there's bad anger. In his book, City of God, St. Augustine of Hippo categorizes anger as a passion. As a passion or emotion or feeling, and I know if you are, <laughs> if you work on those terms, you will readily tell me that they're not the same, and I acknowledge they are not the same, but for the sake of our surface level argument today, we're working on it. So, as a passion, emotion, feeling, not a virtue, it is value neutral, depending on why a person is angry and how they handle and express their anger. This is really important to keep in mind, the value neutrality of anger initially. How do we, though, separate good anger from bad anger, while also realizing that perhaps that division is a little too neat at times? Good ire seeks to protect goodness. It's anger against wickedness caused by injustice. Such an anger can coexist with its remedies, like patience, for instance. Righteous anger is a mean opposed to complacency or apathy on one side and the disproportionate or wrong wrath on the other. The mid-century Thomist philosopher Joseph Pieper writes that the power of anger is actually the power of resistance in the soul. Anger is a powerful motivator to action, to that resistance. It can actually be a huge moral problem if one does not get angry about some of the great injustices of the world. Inadequate anger about racism, as Martin Luther King Jr. wrote about in his letter from Birmingham jail, upholds the status quo and makes real change difficult. The commonplace sign that you see in protests, no, N-O, no justice, no peace, no justice, no peace, K-N-O, expresses an epistemological reality. It's not a goal or a threat. It's the way we work. The ethicist Zach Cogley argues that anger can be virtuous or vicious by how well it evaluates wrongdoing, how it motivates the angry person, and how that anger is communicated. He writes about it in Virtues and Their Vices. Anger is not virtuous if it fails at any one of those points. For instance, if you're angry for a great reason, but you communicate recklessly or with intent to harm, or if you have wonderful, coherent communication, but are either insufficiently or overly angry, or finally, if your anger is for a straight up bad reason, it doesn't count as righteous. Cogley also notes that each and every culture has unwritten rules about the display of anger, which makes all this a lot more complicated. I visited Rome as a college student, and I was flabbergasted to see this woman across the street from me, and she was furious about something. 
I could not tell what because obviously she was Italian and I didn't speak Italian, but she was gesticulating and she was screaming just on the street, furious. But no one around her on that very busy street in Rome batted an eyelash. Nobody really cared or gave her the time of day. As an American, I found that rather surprising because in America, someone probably would have called the cops. And I'm not saying that's a good thing, (laughs) just stating it as a fact of what probably would have happened. That cultural difference is fascinating. A less neutral example um, appears with angry women in America who are socialized differently with anger than men are. Cogley, that ethicist I quoted, cites Jody Miller's depressing study, which describes how the display of righteous anger by women in response to sexual harassment, um, especially young black women, often resulted in simply more harassment. Cultural norms deeply affect how people perceive anger and how they react to it. Anger is culturally complex, and social perceptions of it are often unfair and do not um, particularly help us in regards to the morality of the anger displayed. So what is bad anger? According to our pal Jeffrey Chaucer, writer of the Canterbury Tales, quoting Aristotle, anger is, bad anger is a wicked will to be avenged in word or deed. Chaucer divides bad anger into two varieties, sudden or hasty ire. Isn't that a great phrase, by the way? Hasty ire. Without the advice and consent of reason. So one immediately thinks of the kind of wrath that leads to third-degree murder or to road rage or to an ill-considered cussing out. The other is ire to which reason fully consents, the slow burn anger towards vengeance. And this kind of anger, in Chaucer's words, quote, wasteth and destroyeth the likeness of God. This is the wrath of first-degree murder. It's also the premeditated curse, the mean-tempered criticism, the carefully crafted devastating slight. Chiding and reproach, as the medieval folks called it, can create cruel and gaping wounds in the heart. These are spiritual manslaughter, Note the pastoral materials of the day, following Jesus' words about murder in the heart. Hate, says Chaucer, is nothing more than old wrath. I imagine a formerly hot soup with a congealed layer on top of it. Hate as a gross meal of wrath cooled down and stagnant from its peak at boiling. Fire truly is the metaphor of choice for anger, both then and now. Fire can warm a house, cook a delicious dinner. Fire can burn down an entire town. It can purge or it can kill. The parallel to anger is pretty clear. The medieval book of vices and virtues notes the especially deadly combination of wrath and power. When two lords go to war... Many of the dead in the aftermath are in, were innocent. Churches are robbed and broken. Towns burned down. Men, women, and children are disinherited from their land. The relationship with wrath and war is also repeated over and over by these medieval writers. 
Anger's divisive power is never more visible than in war. The angry person is at war with another person, but also, and perhaps more devastatingly, at war with himself. When wrath is so full in a man, he tormenteth his soul and his body so that he has no sleep or rest, says the book of Vices and Virtues. Who hasn't argued with a spouse late in the evening and then seethed under the covers, unable to sleep or be at peace? The book also tells us you can tell an angry man by the way he treats those he considers beneath him. His children, the poor, and as someone living in in the present, I can add servers at a restaurant, coffee baristas. Our wrath also makes rationalizers out of us. As a society, we've gotten too casual with our anger, especially with the commonplace rage inflamed by wicked tongues and correspondingly familiar with equivocation and rationalization. Twitter drips with contempt, and Facebook's algorithm happily inflames open rage as more productive and more interesting than enjoyment. Politicians use wrathful language on a regular basis, hoping to harness its power to their wagon. And it's often disguised as humor or, quote, just rhetoric. Although there's no such thing as just rhetoric. Words always have meaning and consequences beyond what one perhaps intends. I've seen a lot of rage recently centered on critical race theory. I've been fascinated and repelled to see most of this rage is generated without even quite knowing what it is, let alone reading it. Someone ran for school board in my neighborhood solely on opposing critical race theory. Keep in mind, critical race theory isn't remotely taught in the school district here. This candidate hoped to channel countrywide rage around a non-existent local threat to the benefit of his personal victory. What the nation witnessed on January 6th of last year spoke to me of a society made up of a lot of Christians, enamored with their anger, fed by it, consumed by it. Rebecca Conendike de Young, the the ethicist, concludes, When wrath lacks justice's good judgment and genuine impartiality, good reasoning becomes its puppet. Sometimes our anger drives us to good purposes, as with Martin Luther King's urging for white moderates to be more angry that I mentioned above, about that prevalent racism which they blithely underestimated. But too, too often, our reasoning becomes the puppet of wrath, and we ourselves become the puppet of whatever is inflaming that wrath, like that politician example. Don't let yourself become a tool for anyone else. It's ultimately dehumanizing. Anger, good or bad, is not to be tossed around or cultivated lightly. Just as you watch your young child carefully around a fun, lighthearted campfire. Just as you install smoke alarms in your house, even though they always run out of battery at 3 a.m. for some reason. We're all excellent rationalizers, and we're pretty quick to categorize our wrath in the righteous category rather than the unrighteous. We do need to feel our feelings. To shove anger down and ignore it is to miss many important signs about who you are in the world, about what is just and unjust, and about what you need. But it is equally important to note that to turn to wrath without 
thought, time after time, creates its own habits. Aquinas observes that the passions become more out of control the more we give them free reign. Jacob's Well notes that some angry people are like a person who sees someone else's house on fire and then lights fire to their own house. That person would destroy their own soul by denouncing the sins of others. Everyone knows angry people, people ready to be furious at the drop of the hat, people angry out of habit. Jacob's well advises one to avoid these people as one would avoid an ogre, literal quote, an ogre, because they're dangerous to be around. Dallas Willard nicely sums up Thomas's tradition when he writes, Feelings are, with a few exceptions, good servants, but they are disastrous masters. One of the most fascinating things about reading these ancient texts attempting to describe human behavior and figure out the world is that sometimes they come very close to modern ideas in psychology. Chaucer writes that wrath is usually a secondary sin generated from pride or envy. You may recall those from previous weeks. As I was, I had just read that, and later that very same day, in a modern-day paper on anger, I read that anger is a secondary emotion, usually masking something else like fear or sorrow. DeYoung notes that people with high standards or ideals are often troubled by anger. The closer and more precious is the threat, the bigger the reaction. If someone's child is threatened, for instance, see the anger that erupts from parents. But as any teacher knows well, this anger is sometimes in response to a real danger to their children. But sometimes it's ruffled pride or a misunderstanding. It doesn't make the anger in a fearful or offended parent less potent. DeYoung paraphrases the desert father Evagrius, who impels us to ask, what is your anger guarding? I find it incredibly fascinating that unlike envy and love or pride and humility, the tradition disagrees on what remedy is most suitable for anger. Because anger is sometimes good, deeply, deeply needed for change, the remedy itself becomes more complicated. Patience has been suggested, as has meekness. And I found some more curious remedies, too. The gift of knowledge, for instance, or a medieval virtue called evenhead. Knowledge doesn't really count as a virtue. It's more of a gift to be sought and received. However, willingness to learn and learning itself are both important habits and, may, and that could be called virtues in that sense. The Book of Vices and Virtues notes that often the gift of knowledge casts out the sin of wrath. Knowledge makes men and women more wise and measured in all things. The book announces, and this is one of my favorite parts of this whole episode, so pay attention. With this gift, you'll become more like the angels of the Lord, who are, quote, all full of in eyes to fore and behind. Sign me up. I want to have eyes to fore and behind. I could read books in the front and the back. But seriously, who hasn't flared up in anger to discover mitigating circumstances? A simple example. Your friend is uncharacteristically late to lunch, and you're angry because your time is valuable and limited. They get there, and they're teary-eyed. They got in a fender bender on their way to lunch, or had a difficult phone conversation that delayed them. 
and the irritation leaves you as wind out of your sails. On a much bigger level, the magnificent book by Eli Saslow, Rising Out of Hatred, depicts the transformation of the white supremacist wunderkind, Derek Black. Black attended college, and some brave Jewish students befriended him. The power of their friendship and the newfound knowledge about Jewish people that Black was confronted with challenged his hatred to his core and led him to publicly renounce white supremacy. His openness to learning changed him. Though he was rejected by his family and friends, Black could not unlearn what he had learned from his college friends. His reason and his passion became aligned in the light of this new knowledge, and his hatred, Chaucer's old wrath, could not bear the light. The Book of Vices and Virtues uses some vivid examples to describe the person endowed with the gift of knowledge, besides the wonderful angel one from before. You become like a master builder who knows the measures, who doesn't miss a line or a leveling. Or you're like the prior who makes order in the cloister of the heart and all its sides, the understanding and the will, the reason and the passions. When these sides accord, they make a sweet melody together, each informing the other. So it's not about reason destroying the passions. It's not the effort to create a passionless, emotionless life. It's about sweet accord, and mutual formation. Your task as a human in pursuit of this gift is to inquire, to judge, to consider carefully, and then to communicate your understanding. If you find yourself angry about something you have not encountered personally or do not understand, as in, say, the critical race theory example, really anything wielded by public figures to stir up emotion and response. It's really important to proceed with caution and investigate for yourself. Don't take others' words for it unless they are personally learned on the subject themselves. The questions of the gift of knowledge are, in interrogating something wrathful, what's the manner? What's the intent? Knowledge can sometimes make you angrier. That's why it's a good remedy in many respects for wrath. It can help redirect us to fruitful anger rather than embitterment or bad anger. How about that funny little medieval virtue called evenhead? It's closely related to knowledge, and it's closely related to what we might call temperance or equanimity. The evenheaded person has accurate self-judgment and is good at examining her conscience. She doesn't put herself in positions where her anger might spiral out of control, for example, in getting drunk or overfasting. That is, eat lunch, it will make you less angry. <laughs> she takes care of her body because she knows her body is the source of good and bad anger, the fight or flight response, the gut instinct that says to remove yourself from a situation or, alternatively, to intervene in righteous anger. She's a careful listener and hesitates to judge others' secret motives. She refuses to affirm anything but what she has well inquired, says the Book of Vices and Virtues. In her speaking, she's deliberate. She follows the counsel of Proverbs 29. If a wise man contend with a fool, whether he be angry or laugh, he shall find no rest. Evenhead is not a very modern virtue. 
might feel a little calculated as I'm describing it out loud. And this is because we often prize brute honesty at the cost of a measured and deliberate response. This is a double-edged sword. It's both good and bad for us today. But I do think medieval evenhead is worth thinking about further, especially in the context of the online world. It's also not too far from the next remedy, meekness. The word meekness has survived to today, unlike evenhead, but it has acquired a very negative connotation. One of the pieces I read on anger even treated meekness as a straight-up vice, similar to apathy or cowardice. I must confess, as a woman, I feel extremely uncomfortable with this word. It has, for centuries now, been attached to a culturally valued form of womanhood, especially of wifehood, as the meek wife entirely under her husband's thumb, one who never complains or reveals her true needs and thoughts. Yet historical meekness is often, not always, but often, richer and more nuanced than these things. When Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, meekness can't possibly mean cowardice or a mealy-mouthed refusal to engage, or for that matter, womanly reticence. What might it mean? John Chrysostom, as quoted by a very influential medieval book of virtues, the Summa Virtutum de Remedis Anime, says, Meekness is the calmness of mind which cannot be easily vexed by the evils it suffers, nor be provoked to inflict evils. This makes me think of meekness as the power to choose your battles. If you're not easily vexed, in the words of Chrysostom, your anger becomes more powerful, more moving when it is aroused. And a resistance to inflicting evils means that, in the words of the Summa Virtutum, meekness is the soft pillow on the bed of conscience, on which our soul rests in safety. Unlike the wrathful, tossing and turning, unable to rest, meekness gives space to rest for a moment. And if, as medieval writers point out time and time again, wrath and power are extremely dangerous bedfellows, then meekness deserves to be a leader. As Summa Virtutum explains fascinatingly in the idea that the meek inherit the earth. The meek listen and are ready for correction. And all our cultural understandings of meekness are upended. We so often see the meek only fit for following the brave or outspoken or defiant. And while these things are so often good too, to see meekness alongside them rocks the boat. Meekness fits one for power and influence. It's the opposite of disqualification. Finally, we have patience. I'm running out of space and time, so this is not a good summation of patience. And so here goes. The Summa Virtutum distinguishes between the two by saying meekness measures anger while patience suffers under external hardship. Note, patience can be misinterpreted as shut up and take it, but it isn't. We're told Job is both meek and patient, and he doesn't scruple to doggedly question the Lord or call out his friends for their terrible interpretation of events and of God. Chaucer tells a different little story about the need and utility of patience. 
a philosopher upon a time, that would have beaten his disciple for his great trespass, for which he was greatly immoved, and brought a yard to beat the child. And when this child saw the yard, he said to his master, What do you think you're doing? I will beat thee, said the master, for your correction. For truth, said the child, you ought first to correct yourself, that have lost all your patience for the guilt of a child. For truth, said the master, all weeping, thou sayest truth. Have thou the yard, my dear son, and correct me for my impatience. That's from the Parsons tale. And (laughs) it's a funny story. Um, The idea of the child beating his master is maybe not the, uh, the most helpful conclusion for us. But what it does teach us about patience is that patience is a remedy because it keeps us from mimicking the impatient philosopher and beating a child. In patience, as we endure the suffering of some external event, we discern large evils from smaller ones and we modulate our behavior accordingly. Patience allows us to endure the anger-inducing situation in order to respond righteously. An angry reaction while stuck in traffic is different than an angry reaction while witnessing or experiencing discrimination. An angry response of beating a child is different than an angry response of gentle chastisement over failure to apply oneself. Patience has actually even been called good anger in the sense that it allows one to keep going and to keep working for love in the world despite the massive odds. Again, Dr. King's name comes up as a famous and often used exemplar of both good anger and of patience. His endurance is famous, but his patience in that endurance was the very opposite of a quietist passivity. My final thought, and this is what I'm really wrestling with. As a woman socialized into not expressing anger and as someone generally uncomfortable with anger, I do want to feel my anger and not quickly dismiss it or hide it. Anger itself, as you recall, is not the sin. It's just the passion. What constitutes vice comes afterward in my actions, in my thoughts, in how I treat others. I'm working on asking myself, like Evagrius did 1,700 years ago, what is my anger guarding? Then I can act more appropriately. Thanks for listening, friends. Next week, we'll consider the very strange vice of sloth and its remedy of perseverance. And I will give you a heads up. This was the most interesting episode for me to work on, the sloth episode, because it was the one that I really had misunderstood. So definitely stay tuned. If you'd like to see more of what I'm up to, sign up for my free Substack newsletter, Medievalish with Grace Hammond. I'm also around on Twitter at Grace Hammond PhD and Instagram at Old Books with Grace, and I'd love to hear from you on either of those platforms. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you shared with a friend, rated and reviewed on whatever platform that you listen to. I'd really appreciate that. And thanks again for listening.